Well, folks, welcome to the 50th episode of Democracy Nerd. Before we start, I want to say thank you and share a nice review by Justin Krimp, the host of the Democracy Paradox podcast, and appreciate that new interaction. Thanks for the kind words. Justin also wanted to give them a plug. If we can help promote the folks out there who are trying to engage the question of how do we preserve and protect and strengthen and actually have a democracy, uh, the more hands on deck for that project, the better. And one of the best basic tenets of our show is that democracy works better if more people do it. Uh, so thanks for those kind of words, Justin, or for doing what you're doing. Uh, also, we're compiling interview highlights for the past 50 episodes. Uh, 50 episodes is a lot for us because each of these is pretty in-depth. Each of these tends to be with an author who has published a work of relative importance and depth and, and intricacy. And so we appreciate guests, listeners, activists, academics, everyone else committed to uh, pro-democracy, if not consensus, hopefully supermajority. And if you want to offer a view, that's great. But also if you want to give us a piece of feedback on a highlight that you thought we should carve out, take as a video and release out to the TikTokers of the world, uh, we would, of course, really Appreciate that feedback and those recommendations. We can do that editing work and really capture some of the best highlights. Now we'll move on to episode 50. Recording this episode days after the Freedom Convoy in Canada filled Ottawa streets with big rig trucks. Who doesn't like a good sequel? Quickly organized on social media what began as an anti-COVID protest became an anti government protest, which also included the waving of Nazi flags. An anti-government protest organized over social media in the nation's capital that also drew support from white nationalists. That sounds like a sequel. It sounds like at least reverberation of what happened in January 6th. We're joined today by an expert on social media and its impact on politics, Jonathan Negler, co-director of the Center of Social Media and Politics at NYU, New York University. Professor Nagler, Jonathan, welcome to Democracy Nerd. And thanks for being one. Oh, thanks for having me here. Let's start with that truck convoy. When did you hear about it? What initially occurred to you? So I didn't hear about it till um, I think a day or two ago. But then I you know, went to read about it to see what happened. And from everything I read, it sounds like this was really a peaceful protest. Um, there are minority of truckers who aren't vaccinated. They were not happy with government mandates. They went, you know, they went to the seat of government to protest. It's healthy democracy. I think the sort of focus on, well, there were extremist groups there and there were um, folks with Nazi signs. That's a really bad thing. But the, in the video I saw, there were very few of them. They were far outnumbered by folks who were peacefully protesting. And this has happened, you know, sort of forever, this way predates social media, that extremist groups take advantage of mainstream rallies, mainstream protests to show up because they know the media is there and they know it gets confusing. Well, who is the extremist protester and who is the mainstream protester who showed up? So I think in terms of covering this, we ought to be focusing on the fact that, wow, this was a peaceful protest. Lots of people showed up. They stated their point of view. You or I may disagree with their point of view. But this was democracy at work. And to focus on the handful of people who showed up who, who had pretty vile signs, I, I think misses the point here. I mean, we obviously want to be super sensitive to the fact that we, we need to know that there are some number of people out there 
who want to attack democracy. But this seems to me like this this was this was a peaceful protest that should not cause us to con- conflate it with um, the events of January 6th. That's helpful. And I'm reminded of pretty much any march I've been to had some group that if they had invited me to join, I probably would have said no. Right. Like right. Any, any, Absolutely. As uh, as Teddy Roosevelt said, of every good cause that I've been involved in, they tend to attract a certain lunatic fringe. And that is a uh, I, I can remember I can remember learning about what the Wobblies were because they were I was in some, you know, in some peace march with my parents and there was a group you know the work workers of the world unite i was like oh what's that and all those wobblies you know that's not a group that i'm a member of and, and nor was nor did i invite them right nor did i go because my you know 12 year old self no. thought that was related to the thing that i was doing so i get that. no yeah and that's right and this is the nature the nature of mass protests that they are open anyone can show up and they do no i appreciate your judiciousness because so much of the dynamic in social media. A friend of mine says, people don't go to social media for information, they go for affirmation. And so when, if I see something that I don't, if I see a protest on a subject that I don't like, and I don't like the people who are doing it, it might make my lazy brain gravitate towards the thing that confirms my dislike for whomever folks are doing and try to continue a narrative that have been built for me that I'm building up in my own head. Uh, where where are you seeing, uh, what is surprising you most about the impact of social media on our understanding of what's going on around us? So I, I think there are two levels to that. And in terms of social media's impact on, on you know, our understanding, there's the, there's the media and what the media is, is thinking about the world. And then there's what social media is doing to the mass public. Social media t- tends to amplify particular viewpoints. Um, we know that sort of extremist talk and, and stuff that is very kind of the, the more out there it is, the more likely it is to, to get carried. And so I think people who focus on what is on social media can get a little bit of a, a you know, an, an unrepresentative picture of what's really going on out there. So I, I think what social media is doing you know, we, we obviously see a grave danger that it is carrying a lot of misinformation. That That's a small part of what it does. And that misinformation goes to, real, you know, most of it goes to a small part of the public. So it's, you know, whatever you want to see on social media, it's there. Um, and, and the question is, what's the overall impact? And, and that that varies. And it's worth talking about that impact. But as I was prepping for this and thinking about it, I was able to boil down part of my understanding to kind of simple concept, which is that in the legacy media world that was gatekeeper rich, that media analysis, that that media context rather, tended to undercover, underappreciate, underrecognize fringe or extremist or at the edge voices and players. In a social media world, it seems to not have merely eliminated that impact, but flipped it to over cover, to over, uh, to, to amplify the extremist voice, because that's the thing that gets attention. That that's the thing that seems more shareworthy and shocking. It gets somebody to stop. Somebody who's a friend of mine was an Instagram consultant. He like hires himself to bars to help them boost their Instagram traffic. He says, the number one objective we're trying to do is get them to stop. They're, they're scrolling, they're scrolling. You want them to stop. And the more extremist message stops. So in the old media world, gatekeepers limited. Uh, we've got a falsely 
underrepresentative view of extremist elements. Now we get a falsely overrepresentative view of extremist elements. Fair understanding or overly simplified understanding? I think it misses one part of the story that when social media came along, what a lot of us thought was, oh, there were gatekeepers before. And the gatekeepers did two things. It meant that if you didn't have resources, you couldn't get your message out. And for a lot of people, that typically meant that we thought, oh, well, people on the left who don't have resources, they don't have money, they can't get their message out. But it also meant the flip side of that was the point that you were just making. It also meant that the media kept out certain extreme viewpoints because they didn't think it was healthy for democracy or it simply wasn't useful. And social media lets both those things in. It lets people who don't have resources have access to media, social media, but it means they have a way to spread their message. But it also means people with extreme viewpoints can spread their message. And, and the, the sort of surprise that we didn't see coming was, oh, and it's the extreme ones that are going to have a bit of an advantage here because that seems to be exciting and that seems to be what, um, you know, what spreads more. So on the one hand, in, in the U.S., we can have politicians such as AOC get elected, whereas previously to get into Congress, you know, I always used to tell my students, if you're not very confident, you can raise a quarter million dollars, don't even think about it. And now, no, no, you can think about it because you could go on social media, you could attempt to either raise money or raise awareness. And so on the one hand, it's opened up the system that way, but it's also opened up the system to um, to really extremist views, potentially from both sides, though the ones we tend to focus on, I think at the moment, tend to be the ones on the right. What are examples that have surprised you, or maybe not, maybe surprise is the wrong term, well, what are your favorite or, or most illustrative examples of the kind of thing that wouldn't have been noticed before? Because for instance, I, I wouldn't say that certain extremist views didn't garner media attention, right? I lived through the 1990s, Jerry Springer, and you know, sort of the, the dawn of what I would call the Phil Newhart era and the transition of, and Oprah sort of crossed those eras and towards the Jerry Springer era of daytime talk television shows. And clearly, even with gatekeepers, there are gatekeepers who were looking for the stuff that would get people to stop as they flip their remote control. Uh, and, and I can remember lots of stories about the KKK. The KKK would show up with a handful of people in hoods and that would generate a news story. I don't know how much news was there, but it was it was the kind of thing that would get people to pay attention to what was happening. What are the kinds of extremist viewpoints that, or, or news items, if I can use the term news, that you most notice are amplified now that used to be reduced, that used to be covered over fairly rather than covered previously? I mean, I'm going to go with the obvious one that, you know, prior to social media, and there's a little bit of a temporal you know, oddity here because we have, there's prior to social media and there's prior to cable and then there's prior to Trump. But, not, you know, none of us could imagine pre-2016 that in 2020, there would actually be coverage of claims that there was massive fraud in a U.S. election. That simply would not have picked up steam. But we can't talk about that just as a social media thing. And I think there's an important point about social media. Social media and mainstream media do go hand in hand. Much of what happens on social media is heavily influenced by what happens on mainstream media. So we think about the U.S. 2020 and the fraud story, and I'll take that as you know the biggest surprise. I don't think that could have happened with social media alone. You know, clearly Fox was was amplifying that story in in a big way. So I think that is our you know most frightening example. 
prior to that, you know, I think there are these examples where, and again, this is just sort of Trump changed the world. It's very, you know, it's very hard for us to kind of go pre-2016 and say, well, were there surprising things on social media? But the the dialogue changed and, and now things that probably existed on social media, but we weren't seeing them because, you know, whatever you want on social media, it's there if you look for it. But prior to 2016, it didn't get big enough for us to notice. But after 2016, it was pretty easy to notice there are more than three neo-Nazis in the U.S. We don't know how many, but, you know, it, it wasn't zero. Um, Not just David Duke. Yeah. And we noticed, oh, there are a lot of people willing to say we should get rid of lots of immigrants and we should close the doors to more immigrants. You know, we'd see that after 2016 on social media. It opened up it opened up that and that was a surprise. And of course, it let all those folks see one another. And I think that's one of the big impacts of social media. It lets all these people see one another. So if you have an extreme viewpoint and you're, you know, you're the only person in your county with that viewpoint. You have no one to talk to, and you have no idea if anyone else shares that viewpoint. The vast majority of people around you don't. But you can go on social media and find, wow, look at that. In every county in the U.S., there's somebody who holds this viewpoint just like me. And you don't realize that, yeah, that, that's one one hundredth of a percent of the U.S. population. To you, it looks like, wow, I found a thousand people just like me. And so I think that really changes perceptions out there. And that social proof, the people who can get that kind of validation, not only does a lot of them group up, but it can help reinforce their own views. Yeah. Rather than saying, oh, I guess nobody agrees with me. Now people agree with me. Maybe that deepens it. Does this merely congeal together pre-existing views? Or to what degree does it amplify or deepen those or spread those views? That's the question, I think, of where, you know, what what their interaction online is. But but I, I think simply finding people like you is it's this validation. And then there's the question, OK, are you finding new views that you wouldn't find otherwise that, well, they were close to those views. And so we wonder if, OK, so people who start out, they're kind of on the right and then they go online. Are they finding, you know, things that are even more extreme? And this is one of the conjectures about social media, I mean, we've done research on this and, and we actually don't think it's nearly as true as the a lot of the public fear would, would have you believe. But this is obviously a possibility that people can go online and can, can find things that they wouldn't have thought of. And again, it looks to them like, oh, a lot of people are saying this because it's enough people to fill up, you know, the 12 boxes to fill up my Twitter feed. And again, but we have a population of 300 million. Don't, don't get too excited about that. What's something that many of us would think or fear was a real impact of social media that you think is overstated or just backwards? So I think the fear that social media is driving lots of people um, to really extreme news online is overstated out there. It's not that it doesn't happen, but the research that we, we've done and we, we, have, we haven't published these papers yet, or it's, it's in process, but we've looked at what happens on YouTube. And when, when people follow videos on YouTube, and if you just sort of go to YouTube and you, and you randomly click on what YouTube recommends to you, it, it's not the case that all of a sudden 20 videos you're in, you're seeing a whole lot of extremist content. That, that's not what's happening. And we've also, we've done web tracking experiments where we ask people to install software that lets us see what websites do you go to. And a lot of people are willing, willing to do that. And we look to see, well, how did they end up on fake news stories? How did they end up at sites on the web with a lot of disinformation? And they don't go there from social media per se. A lot of people go back and forth, like they're on the New York Times one second, then a minute later, for some reason, they're on a site with a lot of disinformation on it. So I think people are right to be worried about all the disinformation that floats around online. 
But it's not as if, well, if we just remove Facebook from the planet, people wouldn't see disinformation anymore. Um, websites are out there posting it. Frankly, there's a set of people who found out, oh, I, I can make money selling this disinformation. I mean, you know, prior to social media, go back to super low tech, when we used to wait in line at the supermarket, we all knew what was what was sitting there in, in the line, that there was the National Enquirer or whatever it is, with a lot of stories that, that were ridiculous. But they were making money selling them. And people found out, oh, you, you could make money selling uh, disinformation online. You know, that market is just there. How do you evaluate the impact? What's your methodology when you do this research? What are the key questions you're trying to grapple with? And how do you do the grappling? So we're interested in a couple of fundamental things. I mean, we want to know how much, what kind of information do people see when they go online? And, and that means, you know, disinformation is part of it. We want to know if they see things that are fundamentally not true. We want to see, know if they see if somebody's telling them there's fraud in the election. But we also want to know some basic things about politics, like which issues are you hearing about? Are you hearing about the Build Back Better bill or are you not? If you do hear about it, what did you hear? And then we want to know, did, did that influence your opinion? You know, is, is that changing your viewpoint? So what we do is um, the platform's access to what people see online is very difficult to come by. Twitter is a very open platform. Facebook is a very closed platform. What we've done is we certainly close. What do you mean? You mean that that Twitter shares uh, shares its back end. You can sort of look into it. And Facebook doesn't. What what includes yeah, with an openness versus closedness? Yeah, it, it basically exactly what you described it is the perfect shorthand. That on Twitter, um, generally speaking, most people, the default is people's accounts are open, uh, are public, and I can go onto Twitter and find out what is being said on Twitter. I can go on Twitter and I can just search for, hey, what, you know, what, what are today's tweets with the term election fraud in them? And again, since the vast majority of people keep their, their Twitter accounts public, I can find out how much that is going on. And Twitter provides an API, an application programming interface that lets labs like mine harvest a lot of data from Twitter to find out what is being said on different topics. And that's what makes it an open platform. On Facebook, the default is generally that people's accounts aren't public and people go on Facebook to do what? To nominally speaking, to connect with their friends. And so I have no idea, you know, who your friends are, who you're connecting with, what you're saying on Facebook. And so for us to do research on Facebook is very difficult. We've surveyed people online and in 2016, Facebook approved an app we developed that let us ask people to share their Facebook information with us. And so we gathered a lot of information about what do people do on Facebook? What, like what, what websites do they share with their friends? And so we were able to publish, I think, a pretty important paper from that, looking to see how many people are on Facebook sharing websites that, that are promoting fake news. And we could find out. We could find out who was doing that and how often. It was done a lot less than most people thought. And what we can do when we're surveying folks now is, but post-2016, post-Cambridge Analytica, we couldn't do that anymore with Facebook. And so now we're trying to survey people and say, could you download your Facebook data and then give it to us? You know, we will keep it totally private. We're not going to share it with anybody, but we, we want to know, you know, we want to get Facebook data from a random set of people in the U.S. and find out what are people doing on Facebook? And so it's sort of a citizen science operation of trying to ask people, look, you know, we, we want to know what's going on. People need to know what's happening on Facebook. And if you would share your data with us, that would help because Facebook does give users the ability to download their data. I mean, very, very few people do it. It's cumbersome. 
it's cumbersome to, to send it to us, but, but you know, we're hoping that we'll then be able to examine what the, and for us to examine the impact of that, that what we do is we try to survey people over time and see if their attitudes are changing. So we'll be, we surveyed people in 2020 who we had also surveyed in 2016, and we're, we were interested in finding out, okay, so did people change over the course of the, the, the Trump years? And that's, that's something we're working on over the next few months. And we, and we did this during the 2016 campaign, and we found that people were remarkably stable during the 2016 campaign. I mean, people, I think people remember that as a really exciting campaign, but the reality is by March of that year, everybody knew who Donald Trump was and they knew who Hillary Clinton was and not too much happened. I'm reminded when you said people think of social media as its own thing rather than part of the more complex tapestry. Yeah. Right? It's not just one, it's yeah. not just one or two websites. So the Facebook dominates a lot of, well, before I get into that, I want to get into the interplay, the interchange between social media and what maybe we call, you know, legacy media, uh, cable news, and you may have already interacted with them, but Yohai Banklu who wrote Network Propaganda, that seems like real overlap yeah. between some of what you study and, and some of his great work. We had a chance to interview him here. People can check out that episode in the, in the archive. But, but yeah, in terms of the rankings, right, the, based on the impact that social media seems to be having, have you seen any differences relative to platform? And maybe the biggest variable is your ability to evaluate how much data you have to even try to grapple with that question more than being able to compare them. But what are the big ones you look at? You've mentioned Twitter, you've mentioned Facebook, you've mentioned YouTube. What are others that are having? I don't know if you're looking into TikTok. That's all my nephew uh, does right. now. Uh, the uh, I don't know how much in, you know. Yeah. Instagram is Instagram is the big one for my friends in the music world. Uh, what all are you tracking? What's having the biggest driving the, the, the this? This is a huge problem for every researcher of social media in, in the U.S. and all, all around the world. We have a horrible time doing research on, on Instagram, on TikTok. It, it, we simply have no access to what is going on there. And it's a giant hole. And this is, you know, there are a handful of bills that are floating around Congress trying to sort of force the platforms to open up and give researchers access to find out what it what is going on. We want to be able to see what information is floating around out there. Without government coming in and telling the platforms, look, you can't keep this secret. You know, and, I mean, when the New York Times publishes, it's available for everybody to see. We all know what, what news is being put out. Even, you know, Fox News, we all know what Fox News is saying. We don't know what information is trafficking around Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, in the absence of legislatures forcing those platforms to make some of that data available, you know, we're really shooting blind. Again, you know, we, we, researchers such as ourselves are trying to say, well, maybe we can get people to give us their data. Um, and we have a large project underway. We're trying to do that. We're generously funded by the, the Gates Foundation and the Newmark Foundation to try to get a, a lot of people to share a lot of different platform data with us over the course of uh, the midterm elections in the United States this year, but we really need help from Congress to, to open this up so we can know what's going on. It occurs to me that the old tools of research are in fact old tools that in the old world, read the available scholarship, maybe run a controlled experiment, uh, do a, write a paper, maybe get that paper peer reviewed and then publish that paper. By the time one or two of those steps has gotten its boots on, there might be a whole new platform out there, 
right? There might be a whole new, it's, such a, it's not only a complex system, it's a dynamic system. How do you navigate that? What sort of new tools, not just like write faster and research faster, but does it mean that we have to embed, do we have to create algorithmic based tools? Do we have to, uh, do we have to create our own version of kind of white blood cells in the social media bloodstream that are doing real time, our own sort of benevolent bots? How do you, what are the most interesting ideas that have occurred to you or been proposed to you to how to navigate that? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you really earned the, the nerd and democracy nerd really, really belongs there. I mean, that is, that is in the weeds. But but yeah, no, this is a huge problem of particularly given, you know, the, the times are in, how do you produce research, get it peer reviewed so that people trust it? And it's, there are a handful of people who try to say, well, we need to, there are some journals out that are devoted to just saying, look, we're going to we're going to work fast. We're going to accept, you know, look for papers that are sort of shorter that we can get out. But I think it's led to us thinking that, okay, we need to do research, do it, do it rigorously, do it transparently and post it online and make decisions as to when do we want to talk about this research and say, we are confident in this research. It has not been peer reviewed yet. It would be nice if it were peer reviewed already. We're willing to stand by it. We're willing to tell you exactly what we did. And it's, you know, there's going to be a sort of a public reckoning of how much weight do people put on that versus what is peer reviewed. And that, you know, is going to, I think, bring us into a, you know, a bit of a dangerous world in the sense of what if, what if there's some stuff out there that is not so rigorous and people are claiming it is. So this is a problem because, again, it's not just that there's a new platform tomorrow, but it's also that, will YouTube or, or Twitter changes their algorithm tomorrow. So what we found yeah. out about YouTube today might not might not be well, true be, tomorrow. That, that'll even be more frequent and, and yeah, probably more significant than than a new platform. Keep going though, and I appreciate very much the compliment that we uh, garnered. Perhaps we <laughs> earned maybe nerd status for at least a moment. Anybody who's created who's proposed sort of an innovative pathway that uh, that helps navigate this more. Anything else you want to say on that, or anything else people should be reading on? This is a you know a. There is no easy out to the notion that, you know, I always tell people, you should probably not believe something if you haven't read it two or three times and had it confirmed. You know, lots of science is based, it's, it's why we, in science, we talk a lot about reproducibility, because we tend not to believe things unless somebody else can reproduce us and show us, hey, yeah, that's really true. Multiple people can get that finding. And it's lots of studies to, aren't reproducible because, again, there's you know, there's headline bias, right? There's publication bias in studies. You, if you find the really interesting, surprising result, that's the thing that can get funded, and that's the thing that's going to get published. It also might be the thing that was an accident. It might not happen if you did it four times. Yeah, we're getting a little better on that. We've got um, pre-registration of, of hypotheses and data designs and things, and so I, I think as a you know, as the scientific enterprise has, has improved and tried to address that to some extent, but it's it's not you know it's not going away tomorrow. But I think this is just a hard aspect for the general public to know that like, look, if you see that there was one paper published somewhere with a finding, you might wait to see that there are nine papers published on that. Now that might take a long time. I mean, we're pretty confident at this point that smoking causes health problems. And we're not confident of that just because there's one paper that says that. We're confident because we have decades of research on it. This is just a problem. And so what we can do quickly is produce, you know, produce data that says this happened. Um, we, we published something recently showing that, look, in, in, in three cases, when Tucker Carlson criticized journalists 
there was a massive pile on immediately afterwards of lots of other people criticizing those journalists. Now, we stand by that finding. That, that is a true statement that I just made to you. How much does it generalize? Is it true for, is, it, is Tucker Carlson unique in this? Or does this always happen when journalists criticize, when, I'm sorry, when, you know, when mainstream media criticize people? Well, we'd want to do more research to be totally sure of that. In this case, to be fair, there's other research on the same topic. But, you know, we, we can say very confidently that, yeah, that this happened in this case to generalize from it. Again, we'd want more research. And again, in this, in this case, luckily for us, well, I don't think it's lucky for anyone, but, but there is. I mean, this, this is just a bad phenomenon. My mind goes to marijuana. <laughs> John, okay. John, my, my mind goes to marijuana. And I'll say that when it comes to the research that when I ask this question, what regulatory, and maybe it doesn't have to be regulatory, but what regulatory changes should be considered to facilitate better research, better transparency on social media and on its impacts. And when I say my mind goes to marijuana, uh, it is it is not because I am a great partaker nor a great critic, but I do know that in the rush to, to legalize, there was very little discussion that's happened in multiple states, including where the state where I live. There'd been very little data about its long-term health impacts. One of the reasons why there hasn't been data on long-term health impacts is because there hadn't been funding to study marijuana. And in fact, it was generally banned, right? It was illegal. And there's therefore been uh, rapid acceleration towards legalization, even recreationally, even before funding and allowing for real research. So people are still kind of struggling to get the clinical trial apparatus in the moving in the direction of being able to really understand the short and long-term impacts of moderate or significant use of cannabis. Uh, and it just sort of feels backwards, right? It should, we should have liberalized long ago, at least for research purposes, right? And for medical purposes. And then we'd know a lot more. Now we're kind of catching up. So that's why my mind goes to marijuana because here it makes me think, well, we need to have better tools to research. We need a better to, if social media is out ahead of us, it's out making change before our ability to regulate it, before our ability to analyze it. And even before regulation, it might even be nice to understand its impacts. What is happening or should be happening on the regulatory base or on maybe just sort of standards, practices, norms, and protocols uh, in order to give better tools for you, you and others to do your, do your work? So, so as I said, we need federal legislation. And there are two bills floating around that would be really helpful. There's the Social Media Data Act, which pretty much addresses advertising. That's one part of social media. And that bill would be a big help because all it does, and, and I would say all it does is it is small compared to lots of other things. It just tells large platforms that, look, you've got to make available to academics a database that is actually a real accurate database with relevant information. And that seems like a small ask because you're not violating the privacy of the users. You're just telling firms and anyone who advertises, look, that information is going to be public that you advertised. It's going to be public that, hey, this is who you targeted. You tried to target people between 20 and 30 who distrust vaccines, whatever you're doing. That's going to be public. You know, we're not banning that. We're just saying it's going to be public that you did that. And that would be a big help. If we actually want to, you know, understand what the impact of social media is, knowing what advertisements are going out over it, what people are seeing would be a nice place to start. An act that would go much further is the Platform and Accountability and Transparency Act. And that's much more ambitious. It actually uh, envisions setting up an entity in the, in the federal government 
that would approve people to get access to the data on large platforms. And those people would be able to, to do research with that data. Uh, there are protections built into it to try to protect privacy. And that would let us, again, try to find out, okay, what's going on? Who is seeing what on social media? What's the impact of that on those users? After users see a given video, what happens? Does that video convince them that, wow, there really was fraud? Or does it convince them that, you know, vaccines aren't helpful for COVID or that, you know, completely useless treatments would totally protect someone from COVID? But without access to that information, it's, just, it's completely impossible to do that research and find out what's happening on social media. And the platforms always sort of cry privacy over this, that, you know, we, we, need to, you know, we need to protect the privacy of individuals. It's a little hard to swallow given that advertisers get to, you know, sort of send whatever information they want to individuals. And so it's, it seems disingenuous that researchers are not getting access to data that would help us find out what's going on. What's the partisan breakdown on this? Very sadly, since the dawn of this show, finding a what I would characterize as a pro-democracy Republican who's been able to win a Republican primary, stay there and have yeah. rank is really hard, right? Like most of the most of the emphasis right now when it comes to issues that I would call issues of democracy, most of the thrust has been pro doing weird districting, pro doing uh, reduction rather than inclusion in terms of participating in democracy in the first place. So I, if I, I look at HR one, which was put forth initially a couple of years ago, and my favorite piece of legislation probably ever, and I can imagine that being the kind of thing that multiple Republicans from from my home state might have proposed years ago, and now it's hard. So I could, with that trepidation, I ask the question: Are you finding bipartisan support and opposition, or is it? Is it harder or easier within one part or the other? At the moment, we're just not finding enough support, period. But I think there's potential here. How come? Because- How come? Is it just because I, mean, I know, like, so a friend of mine is now, or so the friend, the, the spouse of a friend of mine is now the, uh, you know, is now a chief lobbyist for one of the FANG companies, right? One of the big companies. And they have an enormous budget. In fact, yeah, the, the budgets, apparently, the lobbying budgets of these, of these large firms are based upon, they look around and see what other people are spending and they try to spend about that. Not because the money, because they could 5X their spending, but they don't want that itself to be a story, right? So they have essentially uh, unlimited resources for lobbying, influencing and setting meetings and, and trying to get Washington to do stuff. And that can impact any member of Congress, regardless of party. So it sounds like there ain't nobody in leadership who's really taking this seriously. Uh, it, it's, I don't think it's the case that, well, it's certainly not the case that it's nobody in Congress who's taking it seriously. If we, if we talk about leadership, this certainly does not seem to be their their major focus. In terms of why it's hard, I mean, you just named one of the one of the answers is that look, you were trying to regulate. You know, we're not exactly big on regulating firms in the U.S., and, and I think that is frankly one of the reasons we're going to have a Republican Democratic split on this. To the extent that we are willing to regulate firms, Democrats are much more willing to do it than Republicans are. It is really confusing, though. Beyond that, the ideological notion of not regulating firms, the Democrat-Republican split on this because Republicans seem to passionately believe that firms are, that these firms are ideologically biased against them. And so you would think that might give them some reason to say, oh, we should regulate them. That's but where they, my mind went. They, they have, have not you know, moved in this direction yet. And it's, it's 
you know, the, I think the firms make a, a handful of stock arguments in, in public. Exactly what they're saying in private is less clear. The public argument, of course, is well, you're gonna you're gonna hurt American competitiveness. You know, if if, if Facebook isn't doing all this, then tomorrow it's going to be a large Chinese-owned firm that does it. And so they they run into that as the public argument. I mean, there are a lot of actors that care about this regulation, not in in the free speech data access part, but the advertising part is a different animal. Um, I mean, the platforms have sort of monopolized advertising. Um, they, they obviously put this huge pressure on news producers and media. Uh, so there are a lot of actors out there who would like to see regulation. But in terms of regulation of opening up data access, this is the, the classic problem of providing a public good. You know, the firms are incentivized to fight tooth and nail against it. And the American public has never been very big on caring about process. And this is a process issue. It's very hard to sort of run for office saying, what I'm going to do for you, what I'm going to make your, the way I'm going to make your life better is I'm going to make Facebook give data, give some data to some academics so we can, they can study it. <laughs> that That's a tough sell on a campaign trail. It's hard to prioritize that issue. You can, it's hard to get the political consultant to think that should be one of the top three things they talk about in a debate or on a piece of mail, or certainly doing a, doing an ad about it, or even sending a fundraising appeal about it. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, we do this, because we know that issues of process, that the the baseline, fundamental, how this stuff works is not the stuff that ends up being sexy to lots of people. And it has been so neglected for so long, in, in my judgment, that, uh, and there's too little power around it that is now to me, maybe the most important thing we have to focus on. So I'm hoping that there'll be more and more enterprising people who want to run for office who build constituencies around the idea that democracy itself is a priority. Democracy is not yeah. only the the fundament upon which we can assume that we're going to be building things. No, no, no. We have to, we have to make sure that, that ground is not fallow. We have to make sure that, that in fact, we can plant things within that garden. I want to talk about and ask you, have you talk about the Facebook papers. Uh, one of the biggest stories regarding the impact of social media in 2021 was in fact, the P Facebook papers covering how Facebook spreads misinformation, how it allows hate speech, uh, that how it allowed coordination with the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Uh, prior to that release, Facebook had kept a monopoly of relevant data that could be used to study the effects. What, and, and I know this summer we had your colleague at NYU, Laurel Edelson from Cybersecurity and Democracy, uh, whose team felt the brunt of Facebook's efforts to monopolize the data of its impact on politics. What did that open up for you? What did that change? Or maybe to use my uh, use my question before, what surprised you most? Um, so the I guess there are two parts there. And in terms of the Facebook action vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Laura Edelson's lab, I think what surprised me the most about that was just that it was sort of sloppy. They took a position that was going to hurt them and was not going to help them at all. And, who, and who was sloppy and who took a position that was going to hurt them? I think Facebook basically coming after an academic lab that was not causing Facebook any harm, that was not violating any terms of service in, a, in an obvious way or in a way that hurt anyone. With such a transparently bad argument, I mean, Facebook just claimed that they were required to do this based on a consent decree, and the federal government immediately shot them down and said, no, you, you were not required to do this. You were doing this on your own. So it surprised me that they were that clumsy. I think what that did was it, it may have done what it intended. It scared some people. I mean, I've dealt with not, not my own university. NYU, I think, has been good on this. 
But I've talked to folks at other universities where now to try to work out any arrangement with Facebook to try to get data, because Facebook does, it does talk to universities. They do have assorted programs um, to try, that make, can potentially make some data available. Um, and a lot of universities now are saying, wait a minute, we're, we're scared. Like, because this contract suggests, you know, how do we know that Facebook won't come after us if we do this? So I think it, it had that sort of chilling impact. The Facebook papers, I think, to me, were really an interesting um, phenomena because there's been a lot, you know, there's a lot of ink over, oh, they're the Facebook papers, they're giant revelations here. Facebook has done incredibly horrible things. If you ask someone on the street to name them, I think they'd have a hard time doing so. I think the Facebook papers, it's an interesting case of like, oh, it's very mainstream media. It's like the Washington Post, uh, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal generating a lot of ink with a lot of stories about Facebook. And, and there were important things in there. I, I don't want to downplay the important things that were in there. But it, it was produced in such a way that I think, unfortunately, I, I don't think the Wall Street Journal handled it as well as they could have in terms of making what was in there transparent and available to people. So they actually knew what was happening because there was, there was this mix, a mishmash of, well, some people who work for Facebook are unhappy about this, that, or the other thing versus, and, and, and here's what someone posted on an internal bulletin board in Facebook versus, wait a minute, we uncovered five Facebook policy decisions. And you have to read a what lot to find important? them. What are those? If you had been the Wall Street Journal editor, what would you have said? Hey, we've got to make sure that the following one, two or three or more things really get through. What to you are the most important revelation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one that they were, they treated important actors, meaning for them, politicians and people with lots of followers to a very different standard than they treated everyone else. Um, in, the, in the sense of if you or I broke Facebook's rules, our accounts would get deleted, you know, shut down right away. But if you were a politician or had enough followers, there was a different standard. And that's a big deal because it's it's really clear what's going on in terms of Facebook. There was also what came out was just the, the amount of effort Facebook spent on fighting fake news and hate speech was so much higher in English language. I don't want to say in English language countries, but it's just, just on English language Facebook pages than non-English language. It, it was really amazing. Now, a U.S. audience might not care so much about that, but it's a big deal that Facebook was basically like, okay, we because it, it looks like, wow, we really better work hard at this in the U.S. It's our home country and we, we could be in trouble here. But the amount spent in the rest of the world was just not particularly high. And I, I think what's confusing to me is they they very clearly rolled back what they were doing to try to limit misinformation post the, you know, the, the election in November. And I, th- I think that did get out there. And, and that was clearly, a, you know, that was a mistake on their part in, in, you know, in hindsight. But I think that could have been a bigger part of this, that Facebook just decided not to be risk averse about worrying about the election while Trump was still in office. I have to just say, talking about how universities scared because they might get people might come after them. There is some vicious irony. Facebook only exists because of a university. <laughs> like, but for but for Harvard. It's a it's a blog post. It's not anything that anybody cares about. And the fact that now the tail has eaten the dog and is telling all the dogs what to do is, I don't know, it, it seems like Greek mythology to me. A question that came in from one of our folks, should, uh, should social media be or have an element that is a public utility? I'm not sure public utility is the way I think about it, but I think it should have an, an aspect of, I mean, you it is a public utility in some sense. I mean, it, it is it is literally the pipeline over which information flows. 
And so the question then so, is- So pause there, exactly. It, yeah. it, but it's not regulated as such. It's not funded right. as such. It's not controlled as such, right? Like if you want to do something with water rates, power rates, you, you'll have some degree of public ownership or certainly some degree of review boards to go through to make sure you're not jacking people's water rates right up when they're going to need it and ruin people's lives and crush businesses. Yeah, so, so I, I think- this minimum thing that we ask for is just transparency. We just want to know what is happening. Because bear in mind, nobody is ever going to agree on, oh, well, here's the way we think Facebook should regulate speech. I mean, in the US, we agree the government should not be regulating free speech. So are we tomorrow going to say, but 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 we think Facebook should regulate speech. We'd like them to get rid of the speech we don't, we don't like. That's a totally different thing from just saying, look, we just want transparency. We as a society just need to know what information is flowing around the information ecosystem. What are, what are people seeing? What, what are they learning? And there's a fundamental reason for this. If we're going to run a democracy, we really want informed citizenry. And we can tell all the stories we want about how to look. If you, if you take a survey of people in democracies, they're incredibly badly, you know, they're not well informed by lots of standards, but they have the opportunity to meet some minimum level of being informed and being able to participate in democracy and going to vote and having a clue about what they're voting for and what's happening, what reality is here. We need that to run a democracy. And so to the extent that these are pipelines of information flowing around, we need some transparency to know what, what information is flowing around in our democracy. I got to ask about bots. So when radio was developed and television was developed, it was lauded as both the savior of democracy and free discourse and its greatest villain. One of the elements of villainy, the primary elements of villainy was not everybody had access, right? That's why cable access existed. It's why community radio stations were built. Uh, each of those was a somewhat thin reed to, upon which to rest our hopes of a free and open democracy. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a big thing, right? If you had a bunch of money, you could buy a radio station, you could buy a TV station, or you could buy time on those. If you didn't, you didn't. Now it's different, but not entirely. Because now what I can do is I can get a warehouse I can hire a bunch of people, probably in Eastern Europe, and I don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. All I have, all I have to do is look at who actually runs some of the biggest platforms, some of the biggest Facebook groups there are. The biggest Facebook group for uh, religious is based, it's, it's either in Russia or Ukraine, and for American Christians, right, they're being moderated in Eastern Europe. It's happening in all kinds of fields where I can get that warehouse, I can get it where work is cheap. I can get it where skilled work is nonetheless in this area plentiful, uh, and I can dominate message boards all over the place, affirm and make people seem like they're famous and important with certain views, make other people seem like they're less important, more derided, or shout them out and shout them down and scare them by really going after their posts. That is happening. I see it all over the place. What are you seeing? Is that something you track? Is that something that you is is sort of ancillary to your focus? Talk about it a little bit. So. That's something we haven't focused on a whole lot is just the notion, okay, so who, who is, we have done a lot of work on bots. Okay, so the, I think there's a narrow question here about bots, but then there's simply folks spending a lot of money to, to dominate the discussion. It's, so let me give you one example of this. Uh, we've done a lot of research on, um, we've done research on bots. We also did, did work on the 2016 election campaign and Twitter released a list of all the IRA related accounts on Twitter. And presumably a lot of these were bots or they, they were accounts where, you know, there's central actors controlling what they did. Now, the Russian government's got plenty of money. So this is like a big actor trying to do something. Yeah. Now, granted, they were trying to do a big thing, influence a US presidential election. But we looked at the impact of that 
and it, it's tiny. The amount of activity that we could find and the potential influence it had looking to see how many tweets from those bots did anyone see? It, it was just minuscule in the context of, of the U.S. election. So I think it's important to realize that like, for really big things, that these kind of disinformation campaigns can, can be difficult. It's not to say they're, they're not impossible. And in terms of the notion that, you know, well, somebody with money could have a bigger voice, um, I think you raise an important point that social media has not leveled the playing field. But the difference, I think, is even if you have no money, if you just have one internet line, you know, coming in and you can post, you have the possibility to become popular. You know, if people are have some affinity to your message, it can get out there. Uh, and again, this is not to say, you know, having, having you know, studied network flows on Twitter, it's a lot easier if people with lots of followers pick it up. So there's access, there's, there's still bias to the access, there's still an advantage to be able to, to pay people to coordinate. But as, I mean, as, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, um, the gatekeeping has changed. You know, there, there is still access for groups without resources. It, it's a thing, as, you, as the center evolves, your work evolves, I'd be curious about it because I do think that that's, because I've now seen, like I've, I've, when I'm invited to groups now, my spidey sense is now yeah. more regularly triggered. I was like, oh, that's, there's a lot, like I, it's a yeah. real person. It's, or no, it is a human being. It's not a robot that's doing this, but yeah. I don't know that it's the person that they say they are. And, and I think that it's not the person that they say they are. And this person is one of the people who's running this whole thing and who started this group. And that's, and groups can be really influential on people, right? I've seen it. I've seen how people end up uh, investing some of their identity in being in one of these groups. Yeah, no. And I, and I think the issue there to, to my mind, that's really important is again, the notion of sort of transparency that who you are talking to on, and there's a tension here, there, there's transparency and there's but we know many people are at risk and they don't want to identify themselves. Um, so how, yeah. how, how do we balance that? Because there is this obvious problem that if you're online, yeah, you don't know who you're talking to. There, there is, you know, the, the platforms are not doing anything to vet people and make sure that, you know, if you, that, that your Facebook account is really you, that's just not happening. And, and this is an issue. And so, you know, it, it, it's trite to say it, but, you know, some level of user awareness is, is required. So we'll tack that as a discussion, hopefully to have in the future mm -hmm. as, as things evolve, as your work evolves, uh, or maybe we'll forget about it, not care about it, but be really sad that we didn't. I want to ask about your year in review. You did a baker's dozen of journal articles this past year, uh, just over half a dozen in, uh, articles in popular media. What are some of the biggest takeaways for you that we haven't, uh, that we haven't covered or touched on at all? So we did a lot of work on, on to find out if people could identify fake news. And let me give you the short summary. They can't. It, it was appalling how bad people are at this. I mean, we, we you know sourced articles coming in that showed up as being, being popular articles that day. We sent them right out to 90 people a day over the course of a month. And people are just horrible at it. They were literally barely better than flipping a coin. They beat the coin by a little bit, but not too much when, when they saw a false article. And what's scary about this is that, well, that's scary in its own. You should be scared right now. But what makes it a little stranger even is that, you know, the platforms like to talk about, oh, well, we'll, we'll crowdsource fact checking. We'll ask, you know, people on the platform to fact check. And we'll, we'll you know, what we found is, no, don't that that is not going to work. You know, it might be something you combine it with 13 other things and it will get you somewhere. But fact checking is just appallingly bad if you leave it up to the public. Why are we bad at it? Why are people bad at it? I, uh, I wish we could give you, you know, we can sort of tell you who, well, I can tell you who is bad at it. Everybody is bad at it. Um, people, you know, what, what we notice is people seem particularly bad, you know, at identifying things that, that they're 
are sort of ideologically congruent with them. If you show Republicans fake news that makes Democrats look bad, they just sort of think it's true. If you sort of show Democrats fake news that makes Republicans look bad, they think it's true. Um, so people just seem to tend to agree with stuff that kind of fits their view of the planet. And, and, and the, the scare, by the way, the, the other part of that that we found out was a standard piece of advice to people is, and you know, many people have told their parents and grandparents this after being sent absurd articles is, well, why don't you just Google it to find out if it's true before you believe it? And it turns out when people do that, things get even worse. Because if somebody sends you an article with a bogus premise to it that, you know, guess what? The world is flat. Well, if you Google that, you're going to find that the set of other stories that tell you the world is flat. And so we were really, really, really surprised by this, really counterintuitive result. And one that's really important that like people need to know because there are lots of groups out there telling people this, like, look, when you see information, it looks dubious. Maybe it is. You should Google it. But it turns out that's not the way to check up on um, the fake news that's floating around on, on any one day. That That's that's not going to work. Um, well, it does work. So it, there have been sort of interventions along the lines of trying to get people to stop and think about it. That's a bit of a the prompt works. I mean, it's, it's sort of weird. But if you, if you can actually prompt people to, to, to get them to stop and think it works. There are other things that, that can be effective in some circumstances. There's a, a firm called NewsGuard that provides, a, essentially, it's a plugin for your browser that will tell you, hey, you're on a website that tends to, to put out a lot of dubious news. And that overall, that doesn't seem to have much of an effect. But it does work for some a, a small set of people, ones who tend to go to, to lots of fake news. And so maybe that could be helpful for some part of the population. Though overall, you're not going to see a big effect of that. The, what we're looking to do now, because we're looking at to, to study misinformation COVID, is say, look, what if we just give people some facts? Um, you know, because one of the things we notice in, in doing re research on COVID is there's this tremendous, again, this tremendous ideological congruity thing. We know that Democrats, if a Democratic governor tells a Republican, hey, wear a mask, it doesn't seem to happen. And we want to find out, well, wait a minute, what if you stop telling them to do things and just give them some facts about it? You know, whether it's a video that shows you, hey, masks really do stop virus particles, or whether it's a very, very simple graph that shows you, okay, here's the death rate among the vaccinated, here's the death rate among the unvaccinated, you choose. Um, but we want to try to see, look, can we improve the conversation by trying to get people to put a little bit more emphasis on, on facts? So I've heard two takeaways at least. One is you can get people to stop and think. That seems to help. And the other is when if people are on a soapbox, that soapbox should be one of teaching and giving data as distinct from demanding and instructing. Well, that, that's what we want to test. And that's one where we can't, can't, can't give an are answer. Are great. Well, so we'll look forward to, your, look next, forward to what, what you've learned. Let me ask, though. Were that you said everybody's bad at it. Is anybody, any categories of people better or worse? Any any indicators that help us figure out who might be, yeah, who might be better at, at doing fact checking and weeding out false stories, fake news from real news? Yeah, but it's it's um it, it turns out no surprise, folks who have tend to have higher levels of political knowledge do better at it. And, and it, you know, so to the extent that the platforms want to say, well, we'll we'll employ people with you know, more levels with higher levels of political knowledge that will help you. But those people are harder to come by. And other things that we thought would be, you know, big, good predictors, you know, didn't work nearly as well. Just, I mean, level of education outside of political knowledge doesn't work. Um, it was just really surprising that, and again, even the folks with higher levels of political knowledge, you know, we moved from better than a coin to, well, they're right almost two thirds of the time.
but they're wrong one third of the time on fake news. And most of us think, oh, come on, if you show me fake news, I, I can tell that's fake. But even among people who are, you know, higher levels of political knowledge, they're, they're getting it wrong a lot. Well, the questions, actually, these are from producer Kyle, and I really like them. One relates to evaluating the efficacy of crowdsourced fact checking. You talked about that a little bit. And the impact of social media on professional fact checkers. Anything else you want to say about crowdsourced fact checking or the impact of social media on professional fact checkers? In terms of fact checking, I, I just think our biggest finding is that people are bad at it and that yeah. just naively telling them to go go Google it is, is not the solution here. Does the mocking of conservatives on Twitter, totally different question, yeah. result in amplification? It did when we looked at it. And this was really interesting. I mean, at least, you know, we think it did because we found an association between, uh, I mean, Twitter itself found that, hey, this is interesting. Tweets from conservative politicians tend to get magnified by our algorithm. Like Twitter just said, yeah, we are doing this. And we were curious as to why would that happen? And we all know that the platforms, you know, amplify things because they want to get engagement. I mean, it's no secret. Facebook admits this. We amplify things so that our goal is to get people to stay on the platform, engage with things. Same for Twitter. And so we're curious as to why would this happen? But it turns out even when, you know, when Republicans tweet things, uh, loads of Democrats retweet it, but comment on it. And the comments, we, you know, we think tend to be, you know, this was an incredibly bad thing to say. That we think leads to amplification. We, we're not sure that's a bad thing to do because you are including the comment and maybe that comment is helpful and maybe it's being amplified to folks who are going to see it and, and see the comment. So it's just a very bizarre case of what's the net effect of this? Like it's, you know, the tweet's being amplified, but what, what's the impact of the tweet at that point? Right, because maybe if, if it's then balanced by people saying no, maybe it helps shout it down, even though it makes it a louder shout. I, and, and I want to stay on this from, can, go ahead. Oh, if, if you want to stay on this, go ahead, because I was going switch, to switch on you a little bit to, to something yeah, else just, we did. Yeah, one more thing. The uh, mocking, I have this conversation with my wife. I think a lot of us are wrestling with this, right? If we see our old middle school friend or our uncle or whatever, who is consistently or even intermittently sharing false, potentially really destructive information, is it better to ignore? Is it better to mock? Is it better to, you can't beat them, join them? Or is it better to uh, to do sort of de-escalation communication, right? Like maintain the relationship, but try to persuade, right? I think we know that old school or, or I don't want to say old school, maybe it was never a school and that was the problem, but just argumentation tends to entrench people rather than persuade them, right? We, I think we know that, but betwixt these choices of mocking, ignoring, or sort of de-escalative communication, any data that points a direction or that suggests further research? Yeah, I think suggests further research is, is the choice I'll go with here because- It's always think, suggests further research. Yeah, but yeah, I think you're asking a really good question, which is, you know, what's a conversation on Twitter versus somebody, you know, speaking to the choir and the choir might be their set of friends. This is one thing where, you know, we don't know exactly when someone- Let's say somebody shares something. Why are they sharing it? Are they sharing a news story because they think their friends need to know it? Are they sharing it because they want their friends to think they endorse it? And it may well be that people share really extreme stories, not because they believe them, they're not crazy enough to believe them, but because by sharing the more extreme story, you show you're a member of the tribe. Like if you share a story that says, yeah, Hillary Clinton ran a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor, 
you are letting everyone know just how much you don't like Hillary Clinton, even though you might think that story is, is completely absurd. And so knowing why people are sharing things is going to be important for us to understand what's going on on social media. Um, and I think that we're, there's, there's much to be much to be done there as to how much of what's happening on social media is a conversation between people versus something else. You were about to jump to something else. So I want to let you do that. Yeah, I wanted to mention one of the other things, piece of research we released this past year that I think is really important. In, in 2016, there was a lot of talk about how much hate speech there was online. And this, is, of course, is the context of the first Trump election. And there was virtually universal agreement that, wow, there's a huge amount of hate speech online that, that is a problem. It's going up during this incredibly nasty campaign. And we looked at how much hate speech there was on Twitter during that campaign and immediately afterwards. And it didn't go up. And I say this with great confidence. You know, we, we worked really hard because we, we, were, we were quite surprised at this. And it simply didn't go up. And one of the things that illustrated us and the reason I think it's so important is whatever you want to find online on social media, it's there. You know, if, if you've got 50 million people in the U.S. on Twitter, you can find anything you want. So if you if you think, I think there's a lot of hate speech on Twitter, I'll look for it. You'll find it. Don't worry. But the idea that it went up over the campaign, it just didn't happen. And I think that's really important because in some sense, it you know, why did people think it was happening? Is it because the hate speech that was there itself became more important, that people became more sensitive to it because all of a sudden they knew, wow, hate speech can lead to really, really bad things. I mean, all, all that's possible. We don't know. But we just think it's important to realize, hey, t- take a look at what's actually going on online because you're not going to learn what's going on online by just looking for a you know, preconceived notion. Maybe there's more hate yeah, speech. Yeah, you need some data. That's why it goes back to you know asking for transparency and actual access what's going yeah. on. it's funny because as you were talking about how bad we are at understanding what's fake and real news in my head i didn't say this but in my head and i'll bet you there's listeners who said the same thing to themselves is yeah i know a lot of people are bad at it, but i'd be good at it right but i just know you know I'm, I'm sure that other people that's what i was thinking and i had not exact words i was like oh people other than me are bad at it and and yeah i Politically engage and pay attention to stuff. I might be, I, I, I'd still be down to compete in a test versus someone else on that subject. But if you had put an article in front of me that said hate speech on Twitter up 32%, I more likely would have shared that prior to fact checking it because I assumed it was true. I would be just as susceptible to fake news as anybody else who doesn't talk about this kind of stuff. There's another one that I wanted to ask about, which was, uh, the impact of Twitter's ban on Donald Trump and what happened to his messages, you know, on other platforms. So this is a really fascinating question. I mean, we looked at what happened when Twitter tagged his individual tweets. This is obviously prior to him being kicked off the platform. Um, and Twitter has two things they do. They'll either tag a tweet to say, hey, this tweet is suspect, basically, or they will simply kill it. Now, if they kill it, obviously, it doesn't go, you know, it stops moving on Twitter. We know that. That's not a mystery. But the question is, well, what ha- does, it, does it go somewhere on other platforms? And what we found was that, yeah, it looks like the ones that they killed move, you know, kind of picked up on other platforms. But I want to be super careful about this point. We don't think that was necessarily because they killed it. We think they were choosing to kill tweets that were frankly particularly incendiary. And they were just ones that you know were likely to, to make it big on other platforms, whether Twitter killed it or not. So I think we kind of, you know, we know that's what happened. We don't, we can't make a strong statement on the causal impact of that. We are working on that one. I'm happy to talk about that next time if I have another opportunity to chat with you. I think it's a really interesting question though. Now that 
Trump is off Twitter and Facebook. Why has that been such a big deal? You know, they, they are not the only you know ways to get on the Internet. He could have a blog. He could do all sorts of things. And it hasn't happened to, you know, in, in any successful way. I find that really mysterious in some sense that, you know, this did he really did he need these two platforms to command so much attention? And, and you know, I mean, You're CNN why, could and, decide and, to follow him somewhere else if he went somewhere else. You're curious about why people are paying so much attention to that or why he complained about it so much? No, I'm curious about he is has sort of disappeared from day to day media to a very large extent. Now, obviously, he's not president anymore. Okay. But he is a pivotal figure in U.S. politics. And him getting off those platforms, just, you know, he didn't find a substitute. And I think most of us thought, okay, come on, he, he could find a substitute. He has a following. If he just, wherever he goes, that following will show up there. And that does not seem to have happened. It's interesting. Uh, I, I don't know the answer. He might be a little lazy, <laughs> right? He, he might have energy to do certain things. Everybody's different, right? But he might have energy to do certain things and not energy to do other things. And one nice thing about Twitter is you don't have to spell everything correctly and you might misspell things on purpose so you can seem approachable or just not, yeah. uh, not try to correct yourself uh, because you, it has the same effect. And it can be really, really short and it does it, you know, but if you did it elsewhere, it'd be, it'd be harder. It might be, might be as simple as laziness. I, I know that of course, one of the reasons why they like to complain about not being on there is to try to fuel a narrative of victimization, right? We've talked about yeah. that in a previous episode. So I, I think I understand that part. I want to ask before we wrap one final question. And unless, well, actually I should ask another, anything we didn't cover, anything I didn't ask you about that I should have. No, I mean, I think there's the, there's, you know, the big question, you know, so what do we, what can the media do here? Because there's, I I sort of look out in the world and say, okay, there's social media, there's this weird wild west out there, but then we've got mainstream media. And, you know, you think back to campaigns and, and, you know, why is CNN talking about every single tweet Donald Trump has? Why were they letting him dominate the agenda? In the real world, you know, independent of social media, but just the world of political information, there's this question, how do we get to a world where the media is actually informing people about, look, these are actual issues. If you elect candidate A, this is what's going to happen. If you elect candidate B, this is what's going to happen, as opposed to what the media tends to, to do, which, you know, as we've known for a long, long, long time is focus on the daily minutia of a campaign. I mean, the media covers daily news. And I think the challenge we have is not necessarily just the challenge of social media, but it's a challenge we've had for a long, long time of how do we get people better informed about their political choices? Yeah, how do you make sure the conversation is focused on the importance, not the not merely the emergence? How do you get yeah. it dealing with the base notes, not only the cacophonous trouble, the, the, even the fact that it's called news? Well, we got to worry about the olds. We got to worry <laughs> about the yesterdays, the tomorrows, the, all the times, not only the, wow, look at that, with that in mind or putting that far away from our minds. What's the biggest step you'd recommend to improve democracy in the United States? 50 episodes in. It doesn't have to involve social media at all. If you had a democracy magic wand, where would you wield it? If I had a magic wand, I would like to get media to focus on covering what is the difference between candidate A and candidate B? What is the outcome going to be? And at the moment, I would like the media to be focusing on, despite the fact that uh, you know the American public shows remarkably little interest in process, but it would be great if the media were focused on what is happening at the state level, where so many states in the U.S. are changing laws to make it easier for legislatures to override voters. And that is just getting, you know, it's not that the media has ignored it, but that should be so much bigger a story than it is. 
because that is democracy under attack in a big way by elected legislatures. Tours. Jonathan Negler, co-director of the Center for Social Media and Politics, professor of politics at NYU, New York University. Man, thank you so much for spending this time. It's not a new year anymore, but thanks for being our 50th episode. Thanks for, you know, sharing your, not only sharing your thoughts today, but also the work you're doing every day. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Cat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy. Democracy.